are listening to Fika with Vicky on United Public Radio, 107.7 and 105.3 from New Orleans. everyone and welcome to Fika. If I'm a minute late, I apologize. We were talking in the green room. <laughs> surprise, surprise. <laughs> this week, Fika with Vicky welcomes author Janet Troll. We'll be looking into her books, End of the Line, and Something Spurning. And yes, she's won awards and had her work published in prestigious papers and magazines, all of which you can find on her website, trollstories.com. But those things can't be felt the way her writing can. She can take a single kaboom moment in a character's life and turn it into a short story that illuminates their whole life experience. In End of the Lines case, she did it with a whole village and its surrounding landscape. She takes on huge issues, wielding her pen like a sword, chopping at them and creating growth until you are left with open eyes, a busy brain and the feeling that you are not alone. In short, Janet's writing hit my reading sweet spot, seeing things not from the perspective of those who usually narrate these stories, but from those who live each day to survive the next, who don't always have the resources, freedom, or experience to achieve the dream that we're encouraged to aspire to. And in doing so, she inspires us to live our own lives more fully, knowing we too can find resilience. Thank you for the spark, Janet, and welcome to FICA. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. I've, I'm excited to have this talk for for many many reasons. One, I just I just like I said, you hit my reading sweet spot with this. Um, I don't know what to call it <laughs> before. I don't know exactly. I mean, it's literature. Your basic literature, as it is. So. But it's more than that. I mean, on your website, you say back roads like rural stories. And I guess that's what it is. But there's there's like there are stories like that that have always just appealed to me. So um, I'm very excited about these asking these questions. But before we get started, could you tell us a little bit about end of the lines and, and your other writings. So those listening who may not be familiar can jump in if they like. So I, um, this is Good. the uh, book end of the line. And um, I love the cover because this is one of the pictures of that pioneer era that inspired me. So these fellas are, um, they're hammering in the last spike of the railway that went from Lindsay, Ontario to Halliburton, Ontario. And here they are. It should be about November of 1878. And they, um, <laughs> the funny thing is I look at all the plaids. So they got they, these two guys here have their plaid shirts on. This guy has plaid pants. <laughs> and you can tell they're Scottish immigrants, Irish immigrants, Welsh immigrants, uh, because it was the time, the era, just like today, much like today, when uh, people were on the move all over the world. The emigration numbers were really high. There were people being persecuted for their religion. There were conflicts. Uh, there was even a volcano in Iceland that sent hundreds of immigrants to Canada. And why come to Canada? Because we were giving out free land. We were just a new country, con confederated in 1867. And uh, we were trying to populate the country and move people inland into the wilderness area away from the American border. We were a little nervous about our American friends at the time. But <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Due to situation 60 years earlier. <laughs> <laughs> some things don't change. Uh, and some things do, fortunately. But um, anyway, this um, opportunity was 100 acres for free if you could settle and build a farm, start farming. And after five years, you owned the land outright. So um, lots of people came, even if they weren't farmers, they thought, how hard could it be? 
was start a farm. But of course, they reached Halliburton and found out that Halliburton is mostly rock and dense pine forest. And so uh, it was not easy, especially when they arrived in November and had the harsh winter in front of them. Um, so this story is really about building a community out of nothing. There was a, a small community there incorporated in 1865. So they already had a school and a church and a town hall, a couple of hundred people who built a mill and started things. And you can imagine how they felt when the trains started coming in with all these strangers, people who didn't speak English, people who uh, were illiterate, people who arrived without resources at all with a winter ahead of them. And uh, so there was conflict and there were barn burnings and there were people taking advantage of the illiterate by having them sign documents that they didn't really know what they were signing. And in a, in a great way, the government took advantage of them as well, because it seems like a simple thought to just, I have five whole years to build, you know, to clear land and build a cottage. And, and you know, I'm, I'm jumping in there. And it wasn't such an easy thing. No, it, it was not. And there were business people behind it in investing, mostly uh, business people from England are uh, colonial, our colonialist past. Um, so uh, they were expecting to make a profit. They did not make a profit in Halliburton. They did not make a profit building that railway from Lindsay to Halliburton because they hadn't expected how difficult the terrain would be. So uh, that's how Halliburton got to be the end of the line. The railway was supposed to go all the way up to Ottawa. And they just said, once they got to Halliburton, they said, no more. We're broke. We're not going to go one more foot. Well, it's beautiful land. It's just not practical it land. Like it's, <laughs> it's a beautiful area, you know. And, and I mean, it's much the same today. People vacation there in the summer and say, that's it. I want a cottage. And then they spend a winter and say, not anymore. Right? It's yes. Oh, that's so true. And that happened in COVID quite a bit. People uh, were... Um, amazed to come up and find a beautiful spot on the far side of a lake and then realize how hard it was to get to town in February. And uh, the Wi-Fi is really not that reliable. <laughs> surprise, surprise. So, well, um, with all the rock and the granite from the, the Can Canadian Shield, it would just mm -hmm. knock it right out. Yeah, I never thought about that. There's no... Well, right. I <clears throat> I read End of the Line during the last little snow kabuffle we had back in January. Okay, right. And I just sat there with a blankie going, I'm so lucky. I'm so lucky. Like, it's not... There's nothing like reading something from the 1800s to make you real realize just how easy we have it now it was it was hard times for sure and um, also you know in the book I talk about the fact that you're in this new environment uh, and you don't have your sisters and your cousins and your dad they're all back in the old country so these were a, a town full of strangers and who do you trust I think is the idea that I wanted to examine when I was writing the story um, because there wasn't a police force at the time. It was, no, it was um, basically, I was just thinking that it was basically lawless. Like it, it was, it was like the, it, instead of the wild west, it was the wild north. And uh, there was a justice of the peace that rode through town every month or so. Um, but for the most part, you had to settle arguments on your own. And um, so I think that's, you know, how people found their, uh, their place, whether they went to the barber shop and asked advice from the barber or the mercantile. And, uh, and also in this story, there was a community of women up on the ridge uh, known as the nunnery. And they were kind of the wise women who had healing. They ran something of an orphanage for children that may have lost their parents and um, something of a woman's shelter for women who were lost or or uh, misused. So depending on who you were, you'd go to these different places in town for advice. Um, yeah, they were sort of like the social network for the mm -hmm. town, for, for anybody that that felt displaced. And that was pretty much everybody 
buddy. So an interesting note, usually, as I said, we, we hear these stories of, of the towns growing and everything. And, and, you know, we hear it from, Oh, the bank and the people who are on the statues. Um, and <laughs> the names that remained on the roads. Um, from that perspective and this perspective that you've used is from you know those wives who had to look take care of children cook garden do everything you know um the men out lumbering the accidents that would have happened all of these things those are the people whose voices you write from mm -hmm. in this book and and what inspired you to do that why those voices well, I um, the uh, station is still there. It's a, an art gallery now, and it's uh, an art gallery I go to quite a bit. I'm also a visual artist, so my paintings are there. And uh, because I'm there so often, I got more kind of a sense of the number of ghosts that there were in the station and and how many people had passed through that station some of them would have been in despair some of them would have been hopeful some of them would have been sick and um, i i had a sense of these uh, many people who'd passed through and so that's um, why i wanted to write and in fact i wrote a ghost into the story and uh, he's first introduced at the station. Uh, he came from the, um, my love of Gordon Lightfoot's song, the Canadian Railway Trilogy. So when I think of railways in the 1800s, I certainly think of Gordon Lightfoot singing about the navvies who worked on the railway. And um, uh, if you remember the end of the song goes, Many are the dead men, too silent to be real. And so I wanted to give a voice to the dead men as well. And and <laughs> you did. I, I love that aspect of it right away. I, I think I mentioned that whenever you walk into a place that seems seeped in history or like a small town like that, you can mm -hmm. almost feel the presence of those people watching you and you gave uh personification if not a live one to <laughs> to that feeling to that mm -hmm. and it was and it was it was excellent i just um excellent i'm tongue-tied <laughs> well i minute. do love small towns i grew up in a small town um dunville ontario down near lake erie and um a farming town and they i find that my current town, Halliburton, has much in common with that town because you have that um, the myth that goes along with the town is is really steeped in memory, and it it may not be totally accurate, but the old timers <laughs> tell the stories, and you know it's uh, it's a it's a stories that have been told many times, and and the memory of um, the hardships that they went through. And, um, you know, the big flood and the big fire and things that happened, those are all part of the myth of uh, belonging and building community and helping each other. And, uh, and it's kind of building a fortress in a way around those people who have, who share those same memories. It's, it, it's a double-edged sword right when we talk about the sword on one hand there's all that belonging in that on the other hand it sort of separates um mm -hmm. from from other things that are going on in the world so yes i i grew up about 40 minutes <clears throat> i guess from from denville Built out in West Lincoln way, and and it just it brought back so much just things that you forget. Like so, mm -hmm. that's more in. We'll we'll get into burning something because that's an incredible book all <laughs> on its own. Um, Brian, Brian, Brian Griner, also an author. Uh -huh. And before we go to you, Brian, um, I just want to say, send over some of your art. I will I will put it up. I didn't, I was so obsessed with your writing. <laughs> I didn't get to that, but I would like to see some anyways. Oh, okay. Brian asks, Janet, does your visual art inform your writing or does the writing inform the visual art? 
Well, that's a good question for me to think about. I, I'm actually a, a very intuitive painter. Uh, my landscapes are abstract and I think I'm an intuitive writer as well. Um, and when I get in the zone in either one, I feel like I'm just kind of uh, channeling ideas that are maybe subconscious sometimes. So neither nor. <laughs> Both and some <laughs> Brian, uh, Brian's a regular. We can yeah. we can talk to Brian however we want. <laughs> um, Brian, is the historical lore in your area mainly verbal, or has it been written down over the generations? Uh, that's that's a great question. It, it is mostly verbal, and Ona, who uh, runs the nunnery. Um, has she's of mixed ancestry so she has a grandmother who's Ojibwe <laughs> and a grandfather Scottish and so she uh, both those traditions are oral traditions storytellers and um, I think it's really important too to see that a lot of the stories that Ona tells up on the ridge are based in um uh, landscape in environment in um, in lore and uh, very very much uh, the grandmother sitting around the fire telling about the past. So absolutely. And <clears throat> I was good because any historical fiction takes research, <clears throat> regardless of what you've heard before or whatever. Mm -hmm. I mean, especially if you live in that area, if you get it wrong, you're going to get called out. <laughs> So you want to be extra, extra sure. Um, obviously, you love history. You love that whole feel. Mm -hmm. What is your favorite type of research? The museums, the library? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm lucky. I've written for the local paper in Halliburton for years. Um, so I, I already knew that writing for the paper, you want to be accurate and you want to be kind. And uh, I always would, if I was writing about someone in town, I would send them a copy first. We fact check this first for me because I don't want um, to make any mistakes. Uh, but when you're writing a story, there's a lot more freedom. And uh, I have to say, though, I, I did get some feedback about uh, a few of the um, stories in the book, more questions, uh, and wondering about, uh, was this connected to the story of Dr. Um, Carroll, who actually was one of the pioneering doctors there? And so it's um, it, it was... Uh, interesting to see that people were making connections, but mostly uh, un understood that it was historical fiction and that I was <laughs> taking some leeway. <laughs> but I have to say, when I, you know, uh, got this cover picture, uh, that was one of the pictures in our Halliburton County Museum, and I got a lot of help from them sort of uh, thinking about the era and wondering who these men were, you know, who the engineer was, who the workers were. And um, that's so the um, definitely the the museum is one source, but also, you know, the local library has um, many books written by local historians and some of them are overly nostalgic you know, about how great it must have been to go out in the bush and tap the trees for maple syrup and paw reading the story by the fire. And, and others were um, uh, just uh, facts. So this house was built in this uh, time period. And here was the building. There was a story to it. It was just it, documenting more. So all of those books helped to um, help me in, in my research. But I think the storytellers... Uh, the old timers really, they love to, uh, to tell that, that myth of the past. And unfortunately, we're losing a lot of that because we don't have that time around the dinner table or whatever mm. right now. We're really, really busy. So stories like this are important and getting them out is important. And, and, um, 
in whatever way just to preserve them. So, you know, as you have. But when you mention those local historians, like travel across northern Ontario, and I love those books. Like we collect those books. I don't know if there's still a thing really with all of the ebooks and things going on, but I just mm. always loved them because they had I don't know. They have something oh, <laughs> that you would miss. Yes, yes. They're just, Definitely treasures. They're just fantastic. So, and despite the fact, look, okay, I have to ask, how much, like, was there something like the nunnery in Halliburton? Or was that completely um, your creation? Well, I took stories from different time periods. So um, from the 40s, 1940s, from the 1920s, from the 1960s, and and characters, and I reimagined them as they may have been in 18 in the 1870s. So um, yes, <laughs> there there was a community of women, and uh, with reputations that were questionable, they uh, were marginalized. The, there was suspicion that they may have uh, not been. Christian women, and so oh. um, <laughs> yes, it's a shock. I know, <laughs> maybe witches. So there's always there's always that group of of uh, women, and so yes, they gave me that little spark to to write about them. But the other thing that sparked uh, my interest in um, Ona McLeod, who is the crusty. Uh, woman that kind of ran the place. I love was Ona. The fact, was the fact, you know, I, I love Canadian literature and Jane Urquhart often had women characters who were definitely part of the landscape. They were connected to the, the land and the forest and the lakes. And so um, I wanted to have that character who was connected to the land and um, was was able to share that, and and she was people. part of the changing landscape, not only with her heritage of being <clears throat> um, part. Give me the tribe Ojibwe. <laughs> Ojibwe. I should have known with the area. Okay, part right. Ojibwe and part Scott. Like mm -hmm. those were the two the basics so her and and that she was watching the changing landscape she stood on the hill and she mm -hmm. watched and she mixed the best of both of those the ability of her um frugal grandfather mm -hmm. and her grandmother who was a nurturer and and mm -hmm. about nature and used the one to save the other as much as she possibly could and to help others. So, I mean, she's a goddess in her own right. <laughs> that's, that's right. She definitely was. Yeah, I like her because I like the idea that um, she was a woman that was in the moment. And she was, she was born into an era and she knew she couldn't change things. She was sad about the destruction of the old growth forest and the pollution of the lakes from the, the mills. And she was, you know, all those things are dead and gone. And, and she knew she couldn't save them. So if when you're born into an era, you, you um, have to make the best of it. You know, when we used to say, play the hand that you're dealt. And Ona knew how to play the hand she was dealt. Well, and and survived and survived mm -hmm. and helped other people to survive. That wouldn't, because this is what I said in the opening, the resilience of these people is just amazing. Like, mm -hmm. no, we couldn't do it. <laughs> we no, we could not. And they just kept <laughs> on going every day, like just, you know, to get up and do the whole thing the next day, you know. So we don't know how to farm. We can't feed the kids. They came from, I mean, most, I think, at that point in time was due to poverty. Most of the... Sure. The migration was due to um, mm -hmm. poverty, and they weren't finding it any better here. Um, no, it wasn't that dream. And and I think immigrants today, find, you know, are so um, disillusioned as well. Um, it's you come to make a, a better life for your family, and often it's um, not possible. Mm -hmm. 
Forbidden history, grisly ghosts, monstrous cryptids, and harrowing folklore dominate Japan's history and culture. Mysterious Japan is a bi-weekly podcast presenting these spine-chilling horror stories, urban legends, and unbelievable histories in a campfire story format. Many of these tales have never been presented in English before. Our journey takes place where dark history and supernatural folklore collide. Mysterious Japan is produced, written, and translated by recognized Japan expert Dr. Heath Avey. Season 1 relates the unbelievable legends and ghost stories from the so-called suicide forest. Listen to Mysterious Japan for free on Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at our website at themysteriousjapan.com and be transported by unbelievable stories where the lines between reality and folklore become blurred in the shadowlands of Japan. Once again, that's themysteriousjapan.com. No, it, it, it's just, you know, the land of, okay, Jason, um, thanks for listening, Jason, just discovered your work and can't wait to read End of the Line. I grew up just over the border south of Buffalo, but spent time each summer near Algonquin Park and then lived in Toronto for two years. Thank you. So, yes, Jason, and in Burning Times, I believe Buffalo is mentioned. <laughs> Where, I oh, mean, pe- that's right. People don't understand when you live so close to the border how how lives people are married to people. They go home after work to the states oh, you know, from Canada or from Canada memories. to the states. Um, yeah, when I was ten years old, there was a huge fire in our downtown area. My dad owned a hardware store, so he was jumping out of bed at three in the morning, and uh, this big old Victoria Hotel was burning down and. It happened to also be the home to many Indigenous men who lived in the hotel rooms upstairs, and 13 men died. But <laughs> I get emotional thinking about it. Of course. Because the Buffalo Fire Department <laughs> came across the border with their, with their fire trucks and helped us put that fire out. Uh, there, there have been hands, regardless of what we said about... <laughs> Not trusty. <laughs> oh yeah. Now we love Americans. Oh, and Jason says the borderlands, as I call them, are a special place, and yes. and it really is that um that we can mingle back and forth without um animosity. And if they would just get coffee crisp chocolate bars, it would be all right. Well, there. That's right. <laughs> Life would be much better. <laughs> No, I'm just teasing. Um, so yes, it, it it was a difficult. It was difficult for them. Promises were not where they should be, and mm-hmm. and so we were, we see the resilience of these people, um, um, going forward. And that moving over to, uh, we'll come back. We're all over the place here, people. You know, <laughs> um, something's burning. Yes, <laughs> yes, something's burning. I just is a book of short stories that take place mostly in the southern Ontario area. There is mention of Dorset that this family stopped for ice cream in Dorset on their way to the park. And I have been craving ice cream from Dorset ever since because that is a tradition throughout <laughs> throughout the entire area. Um, but these short stories take a person and they and they they cover experiences everything from um abuse to poverty to to you know and how these people react to these situations it's not simple there are sometimes not that you actually say, but assumption assuming that there is murder at sometimes, um, the running away, like it just really gets, and they are really short, short stories. Like these aren't short mm-hmm. stories that go on forever. There's 22 in this one book and, mm-hmm. and everyone has a different idea and, and it's, they're just amazing. I was just glued to this. Like, what's next? What's next? My favorite, and I can't remember the name, is is where, I mean, I can't really pick a favorite, but I did enjoy the man, the self-combustible man <laughs> in his chair. <laughs> oh, yes! Yes, I can see that. I mean, I, I, I doubt very much that this was a real-life experience. <laughs> 
Well, they're all based on true stories. And that actually was based on a story. My, my, the house beside my kid's school, I went to pick them up from school one day, many years ago. And this house was on fire. <laughs> and it was, it was some. You have to know the story, people. Okay, yeah. she's not a deranged woman yeah. laughing at a burning house. And in, this... in fact, the uh, the picture on the cover uh, goes with that story. So something's burning. And this is a, a book that was published by At Bay Press out in Winnipeg. And they have, uh, they're a beautiful indie press with lovely covers and, and beautiful paper. And they, they produce so many beautiful, literate stories and poetry and so on but um, anyway I got questioned quite a bit about this cat on the cover and it looks like it's on fire so the cat is not on fire no the cat no, is was... merely guarding the gates of hell <laughs> and so that's sometimes you need a cat to do that for you okay, because... so... <laughs> and what's the story because... called something's burning uh, yes, it is. So I can't remember the title. It's the title of the whole book. All right, right, Vicki. Sometimes you know, I have to question <laughs> myself. Um, so, so that's true. So all of these stories come for your life. Because I was going to ask, yeah. do you eavesdrop in coffee shops? Like, totally. you know. <laughs> I'm like thinking, okay, maybe I don't want <laughs> to be a close be careful. Janet. <laughs> don't share too much when she's around. But it comes, I. Well, I'll tell you the, uh, the uh, first part of my uh, book. And I give you that little bit of the warning. So it's dedicated to those of you who might recognize somewhere in this collection of stories an echo of your own brave myths. The ones you told me over a glass of wine or around a campfire or against your better judgment. <laughs> so listen, if you ever run into Janet and she says, why don't we just go have go to a wine tasting? Don't do it. <laughs> But I have to tell you, um, there are some stories I've taken stories because women um, are such great sharers of their lives. And I've always enjoyed um, thinking about how brave some of their stories are. And, and so I have a couple of stories in this collection, in my first collection, from people who I just uh, have been inspired by how they, how they go through dif difficulty and hardship. And so I give them a little heads up and I want you to read the story before I publish it. Um, and everyone uh, said, yes, please go ahead and publish it because they felt heard and they felt. Um, <laughs> After years and yes. years, because yeah. such things were not talked about, even though, I mean, it's so frustrating because situations could have been stopped, like, not happen if it was talked about but there was no openness it was just considered um the person's the woman's fault um the girl's fault whatever and it was just mm -hmm. like had become a natural thing and and so i think these stories do need to be told in this way with mm -hmm. with them um, so the one with the wrestling um the wrestling yes, bus that was true you know, I always say that life is way more interesting than fiction. <laughs> well, this is this is a a, a friend at uh, the ski hill who was talking about his first job back in the '60s was to drive the bus to Montreal to pick up the midget wrestlers. And I mean, it's not okay to say midget anymore, but we'll say that's that what they were called at the time. Yeah, so it gets very time. confusing. And if you, yeah, if you look up midget wrestling it was a huge thing and they all had uh, names and they um so they would go from one arena in a small town to the next and perform and they really were proud of their craft i mean it was a performance and they practiced really hard and they uh, and and people loved them so yeah it was his that was his job. when did i'm i'm trying to think of when it it's very difficult in life. I feel like like when there ceased to be midget wrestling, um, I feel like it was yesterday, but sometimes yesterday ends up being 30 years ago. So. 
Yes. <laughs> I can't. But I don't think it was that long ago. That... Oh, no. I mean, if you look it up, when, when uh, pro wrestling was big in the 90s, there were, there were still, uh, midget wrestling was still part of that so, performance. Yeah. So, yeah, but no, it was, it was very popular. And there is a story in this book um, that talks about the bus and and going on and it covers everything i mean there's and it has that rural feeling what is that quote um uh, that you write on your web page it's um you know it's unpaved and unpopular and unplowed, unplowed. <laughs> because up in halliburton if you have an unplowed road you don't get out for weeks well, even in west lincoln or this whole area that whole area you were still cut off like i remember during the big blizzard um seven um i may have been in high school at that time i don't like to talk about it but, <laughs> but you know they were going to school for two weeks and we needed snow plows to yeah. we were out of school for two weeks because the snow plows like it just stopped everything so yeah. so yeah if people don't understand you know you leave the rural area to go visit your friends in town you take a toothbrush and a change of clothes because the drifting you're not going to want to drive home the yeah. drifting across the farm fields yeah, um that's very true brian asks janet do you think your writing will inspire other local writers and writers in other small towns to tell the stories that are quickly being lost i i hope, I hope so. so i i teaching a writing course at fleming college um this spring and fall and that's what um i am hoping to do is is share that idea that we have to uh, tell the stories, whether they're memoirs or whether they're um, stories that we've heard, uh, because there are so many people who who want to share their stories, but um, writing them down uh, is a challenge. So we definitely want to encourage that. And. We, I wanted to say, I wanted to ask, I wanted to get your opinion. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay, because All of those. It's been on my mind. Because <laughs> as I mentioned, I have to do interviews. So um, I, I do not think that locations, say, for example, you wrote about West Lincoln, you wrote about, I mean, you wrote mm -hmm. about southern ontario you wrote about halliburton that these books people should think that they aren't going to get anything out of these books if they don't know the area and they don't know mm -hmm. the people because there is a common experience the settlement of halliburton mm -hmm. would would i know that i've talked to um taryn s which is a country in which from south carolina and i think <laughs> <laughs> down there but when she talks about some of the things in the book in that i can feel them because i mm -hmm. grew up in a rural area right mm -hmm. so these things would be uh would you would still get that feeling if you if you were in a rural oh, area if you so. and you know i think everybody has their own small town even in a big city of toronto uh, my friends who live there are part of a neighborhood and uh, Toronto is a city of many small neighborhoods and they're all your small towns. That's, you know, you're the bake shop where you go to meet with people for coffee. And um, so I think, uh, yeah, you, we can all identify and, and worldwide as well. I, I think the part about belonging is, is sort of understanding the code for the town where you are. And uh, if we, I remember being in Cyprus with friends of ours and the code there meant that you ate whatever you were given and that you ate late at night, 10 o'clock at night, they were still bringing us food. Even if you knew you weren't gonna be able to sleep, you were going to eat together and sit together. And uh, that's, um, Important, That's the way it was to honor uh, the whatever wherever your small town is. It it is, and it and it's something <clears throat> like I haven't been out to where I grew up <clears throat> for a while, and I'm sure there are many more roads, <laughs> many more paved roads. I mean, every time I venture into the world, it's like, no, that road wasn't there before. That whole world wasn't there before. Um, right. So so we lose some, but when you we talk about the codes. 
that's why the stories are so important. The reasons. I think that we're losing a lot of the reasons behind things with the changes. It's not saying they were good, it's, which is what I love about your book. There's no judgment base. It's up for us to decide whether we're comfortable with something or something is comfortable. You just, you know, they're not mm. facts, but you just lay the circumstances out there, I think is what is what it is. And but yeah, that's right. And I think that, um, you know, the stories are about people who don't let their, their tragedies define them. They um, move along and they understand that all of us really have um, challenges. All of, all of our families are messed up. All of our uh, lives have ups and downs and ebbs and flows. And um, if you can um, empathize with others when they're going through hard times, I think that's, that's the best. That's what I say. When you finish reading these books, though, I've never been on a bus. <laughs> but you don't feel alone. Because oh, these okay. are the stories that resonate with everyone that are not told that are sort of, you know, as much as there is a sto the, the, the code in a small community, um, mm -hmm. whether you know, a block in the big city or whatever, there's that code of things you don't say. Right. That you don't yes. talk about. Yes. And, and there is the way to talk about people and the way that you're not in a hurry to get to the point. You're going to ask how your mom is first. And, and uh, it, it's a, a leisurely, a more of a leisurely approach to being with people in the moment. So, well, there are some things that you brought up <clears throat> about um, that, that really, you know, you forget as you get older, but we're, we we're talking about change because there has been a lot of change in the world. Um, you know, like forget, you, you know, our parents, we had to walk to school. <laughs> Whatever. No, we're talking. Like, we, we went from having three stations to like VCRs to yeah. streaming and bewitched anytime we wanted to. Yeah. <laughs> to like, and then also the social changes and those things from like things that weren't even discussed in front of me to this is there's there's been a lot okay and Ooh. and sometimes you get tired but th it talks about how those you're a brave woman you talk about how those the change and the thinking is it's difficult for people and it can't mm. be rushed sometimes it's not mm. a matter of liking or disliking it's just there's so much there and backstory that it's just white clean yeah i'm really i'm so proud of people actually for uh, bearing all the changes social changes that we've had in the last 40 years for example and it's difficult and you know when you talk about small towns and people <laughs> used to put up the ramparts in their small towns and and sort of complain about the tourists in the summer and but now the ramparts are being breached from within it's it's the it's when the young generation um, does things and behaves in a way that the parents and grandparents just cannot understand and but they try so hard and I just I'm I am proud of people they they are for the work that they've put into trying to understand. They're, they're very brave and, and not everybody spends the amount of time on the computer or whatever to get terminology and everything down pat. And, mm -hmm. and it, it was, it was a look into that, not about not, I, there's a line about, you know, change comes here slowly, like 40 years ago, you know, we were against this and, oh, yes. maybe that was 10 years ago here. <laughs> Yes. it's like yes. sometimes you know you feel give like people a chance yes <laughs> but the the lunch pails the lunch pail story like nobody uses lunch pails anymore that were hidden before school <laughs> i lived that okay <laughs> yes. i i hit that lunch pail because it was just not understood because <laughs> you took a lunch pail that's what you want a brown paper bag like mm -hmm. and now i look at it and think those brown paper bags were so useless if they got wet 
That's right. <laughs> change is not always good. And like I say, it's the ebb and flow of change that is so interesting and the pendulum going back and forth. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, it is amazing. I, I quite uh, enjoy thinking through a story and, and uh, thinking of, first of all, that kernel that it was based on. Uh, when I, in my book, in Something's Burning, I have the book divided into four sections. Um, and, the, you know, the first one is, is Tinder, because I say a, it, a curl of birch bark, some dry grass, cattail fluff. You cannot start a story without an idea, a conversation or an experience. So that's the Tinder for the fire. And, that, and, then and those it goes- stories at the beginning are kind of the... Um, uh, ones that start a fire and then we move on to spark sulfur smells like an invitation when a match is struck once you start the fire you must stay and tend it without fuel it will fizzle and die then i go on to inferno and coals so each part of the book is really has that life of a fire from the beginning to the end but um that that's why i so appreciate uh the generosity of the people that I've known who've shared their stories with me and, and said, yes, go ahead and print that story. And I'm sure that they appreciate that you asked like that is a very, I think that's the way it should be. I'm impressed um, because you have to respect people's stories. That's, Mm -hmm. that's who they are. It's so important. And I always, everybody, if you understand people's stories, you understand them. It's not, you don't see, you know, I'm like, never judge a woman by the cat she has on her sweatshirt, because you don't know, you don't know who she was, where she came from, like, what happened, you don't know any of those things. And it would, I think would help us all to think a little bit about the writer, what if, what if I remember I was waiting in the hospital and there was an older woman and her phone ringer went off and it was the theme song for mission impossible. And I was like, so impressed. What is going on there? Like, is she a spy? Is she, you know, so, so, um, yeah. And they, and these stories really open up, um, a channel to do that an encouragement to do that, to look beyond that moment. Thank you. I, I think so. Are you writing anything new? Is is what's going on in Janet's head? Oh, I am. Thanks for asking. I've got um, a novel that's uh, ready for editing right now. Like um, Hemingway said, "Write drunk and edit sober." <laughs> so now I have to look for some sober time. <laughs> it's called <laughs> It's called Canadian Saint, and. Um, it's based on Leonard Cohen wrote a book years ago called um, Beautiful Losers. And in it, he writes a small essay on what is a saint. And so uh, this is a story about a woman who goes looking for the Canadian saint. And uh, so that's, well, that's something that's on my desktop. And um, let's see. What else do I have here? I, I, oh, yeah. I wanted um, people to know that I've got a, a page on Goodreads. And uh, I have end of the line on there. So this this is Blue Denim Press, which is an indie press in Coburg. And uh, Something's Burning is from an indie press in Winnipeg at Bay Press. Also by at Bay Press, I've got a book of a collection of short stories called Hot Town. I have to read that. I haven't read it yet. Is it? Is it? This is more. This there, there are quite a few Dunville stories in here and um, uh, Halliburton stories as well. But they, uh, I'm I'm pretty fond of those um, stories. And I also have a a little book called Once a Storm uh, at Bay Press publishes um, from the heart series so the idea is to have a little book to send people when a when a hallmark card isn't quite enough and uh, this is a a book for people who are 
who may have a family member who've gone through addiction. And um, it is dedicated to my friend's daughter. Um, and I'll just read you the dedication at the end. To Katie Danielle Perry. Once a peaceful, loving child, once a teenager suffering from anxiety, once a young adult addicted to Oxycontin, <laughs> once a victim of accidental overdose, forever a blue-eyed angel. <laughs> so that's just a little um, uh, book to memorialize people who've struggled with addiction and in their families as well. You That's cry a lot when you're writing, don't you? I, I envision you being the writer with the Kleenex box beside <laughs> the computer, which is which is good because if, if you're not crying, it's not worth writing. That's, that's, <laughs> I've, I've read that. So, okay. Um, Hubby would like to know, did you ever come across the story that we, you brought that last one, but we were mm -hmm. not able to bring to paper because it was just too much, too brutal? Yes, and I I keep those on my laptop <laughs> because you uh, I realize that they um, yeah sometimes that's where they must stay. But I find that when you do write a difficult story, the good thing is that you get it out of your head and onto paper, and then it's then you're not waking up in the middle of the night thinking about it. So. Um, Absolutely. And great, great advice if you're living a a yes. really difficult story. I know if I can't sleep, I have to get up. And if mm. once I write it down, it's been put someplace, right? Yes. That yeah. that so. Yeah, it's on the paper and then out of your um, perseverating mind. <laughs> Right, right. Yeah. Um, it's important. You've 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 told somebody that even if it's your journal mm -hmm. or the computer. So what you'll, you're going to be teaching this spring at Fleming? Yeah, it's a, it's a, a course called Welcome to Writing. And this is really what I want to share with people is that we, uh, you, you get things down on paper, whether it's a memoir or a story, a novel, a poem. So we'll be um, practicing that at Fleming College in um, Halliburton. And um yeah, that's, uh, I'm also going to be um, helping out with uh, our local Halliburton Literary Festival called Bookapalooza this summer. <laughs> and yeah, <laughs> didn't, didn't choose the name, but it is unforgettable. Like it. <laughs> it does make it stand apart from other literary festivals. Oh, well. And also I'll be uh, helping with the Northumberland Festival of the Arts down in Coburg and Grit Lit in Hamilton. So, so I... This is this is one of the fake things is as we think about the title of that book is that, you know, sometimes people get it in their head that reading is like academic and you have to read certain books and it's but reading is fun and it should be yeah. a party. So I'm loving the name. <laughs> well, I, that's one thing I tell people is you can't be, um, you know, I uh, you can't be a reading snob. Uh, <laughs> And uh, one of the things Stephen King says in his book on writing, which um, which actually gave him a lot of uh, credibility. Uh, people thought, oh, he's just a horror writer, but he knows a lot about writing. And uh, he said, you have to be a reader, read everything, read widely and understand the world that you live in. And talk about it. Like, look how much fun mm -hmm. we're having here. Right. <laughs> I mean, we've dealt with some very, very serious subjects, mm -hmm. but we're still, you know, it's yeah, it's important. It is fun. And that's why I love book clubs. Um, and one thing about uh, book clubs, if you're in a book club or you want to start a book club, um, you can go to your local library and ask that uh, one of these books or a book that you like be put into a book club set so that your book club doesn't have to purchase um, the uh, books, but you can share them and talk about them. And um, so that's something to go to the library and go to your independent bookstores as well, because you can uh, request 
you know, they're so good. Our local bookstore in Halliburton is called Master's Bookstore. And Kathy's great at looking up the book you want and getting it in within a few days. So um, I, I definitely recommend indie publishers, support the indie publishers, support and the, the indie bookstores. Um, because we want different voices out there. And we want, we, we want, because if we, once you get to a certain age, you've read a lot. So it mm -hmm. all starts to sound the same if you don't get yes. <laughs> some new things, new voices, new, new words out there. So the people can catch you on your Goodreads page. Yes. Um, they can go to your website, which is yeah. scrolling around the bot along the mm -hmm. bottom here. Stories.com. It, yes. It's in the description and, um, just think troll, but with a U story. Yes. When I was a teacher, I told the kids it's yeah. Rhymes with dull. <laughs> troll rhymes with dull. I have, I know I said, I don't think you're dull. I don't think these people have found you dull <laughs> you have to remember it somehow <laughs> yes it's not mrs troll which some people yes i'm thinking troll bridge like you 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 connect um one experience to a whole experience yes um, and i think i think that's that's where we have to have to leave it okay, okay. so we are we have five minutes, but I think I'm going to close down the comments before we get carried away again. So thank you all for participating. <laughs> all right. And, um, right. And thank you. Thank you so much for coming. And I was so looking forward to this. I would have had your, I mean, I get a pile large of reading, but as soon as I read the synopsis, the back cover for that book, I oh. knew I wanted to read it. The the cover and everything just put me in. So people go and um and and check this oh, this thanks book. Thanks very much. And just to end, I am um, a great fan of Anne Marie McDonald, another Canadian author, and she is sometimes also accused of writing dark topics. I I don't. <laughs> I was going to tell you because you had that. Yeah. That you had that quote you put on oh, the bottom yes. of the oh, book. Yeah, that's right. And, and it almost felt like you were saying, "Okay, take this," but um, you know, this is this is my um, it's, well, <laughs> warning. So so brilliant at um, saying, you know, if there is a character left at the end of the story to tell the tale, then it's a happy ending. Uh, yeah. <laughs> If you can, if you can survive this life and still uh, talk about it and um, and be in the moment with your friends, that's that's the goal. And so you think we should go out and check Anne Marie as well? Is is is? Oh yeah. Well, I am a great fan of Canadian literature. So again, uh, no, I should. I think taste. I should have. That's why every, book clubs everybody. are so great. Well, yeah, and 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 also we have. To, I mean, I have found doing this show. I have, I have got. I've always been a free range reader. Like I just, I don't do lists and things. I just mm -hmm. find whatever with no. But I do. I have gone into some genres and things that I might not necessarily have gone into, and have found myself really, really impressed. Like, yes, oh, this is yeah. interesting. So you, you never know unless we, tr you try it. So, Absolutely. hopefully. It's already the end of January that you'll be able to um, <laughs> be sober enough to edit by April. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you know, curling's over. <laughs> Just throwing all the stereotypes no in promises. there. No promises. <laughs> so, and, and we'll, we'll be looking forward to that next book. Thank um, you. Janet and Knock. On the Fika door anytime you want to. I just love Thank this you. time. So you I take care. I will. Okay. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. Okay. Once again, end of the line. Check it out because you are going to love this book. Uh, it, Yeah, everybody. Like, I just. So, anyways, I will see the rest of you next week. Until then. May your coffee be hot and your story sweet. Thanks for listening, everyone. <laughs>